And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. You know, I think a lot of my uh, adult life has been like built around never letting the Knicks hurt me like that again. If they suck, they suck. If Jim Dolan does something absolutely idiotic, he did it again. Of course he did. The saddest moment as a Knicks fan was undoubtedly a legend, Charles Oakley. They dragged him out of there like he was a piece of garbage. Apparently there's a, there's a Charles Oakley over there. And that was the first time where I started to think like, this isn't the team that I grew up loving. This isn't worth it. Dolan's ownership. I mean, it's been 20 years of chaos and mayhem. Inept? Does that work? Clown show? Embarrassment? Sad? Pathetic? There's a generation of fans that have become very apathetic. You know what I'm saying? It's like the cool thing right now is not the Knicks. Yes, I believe New York City is the mecca of basketball. I didn't know how much we could continue to include the Knicks necessarily in that conversation because how long do you get to live on what a team used to be? You're really going to bring up Pat Riley to two New York I Knicks know, fans. I was like, Listen, that's the last time y'all were good. You should say thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. With Dolan as the owner, many players just don't want to play for him. I think we're going to have a very successful offseason when it comes to free agents. I say New York is where legends go to die. That can't all be blamed on James Dolan, but it certainly has happened under his watch. Sell the team! Anything I should sell the team? James Dolan, he has incredibly thin skin and the emotional maturity of a young child. With Dolan, it felt like babysitting. It felt like everybody was aware that there was this man-child that had reckless emotional reactions to things. They've been fucked up for 20 years. 20 fucking years. That's crazy to say. Look, I know this will sound crazy to people, but I'll believe it till the day I die. The New York Knicks organization has pissed off the basketball gods one too many times. They are feeling the effects of that now. I'm Chuck D, and The Athletic presents Shattered, Hope, Heartbreak, in the New York Knicks. This series will tell the story of the past 20 years of the Knicks, from the moment James Dolan took control of the franchise until now. From all the moments of Hope, Marbury, Carmelo, Amare, Lynn Sanity, Chris Stapps, to why the team has been unable to sustain success. To understand where the Knicks are today, we have to understand where they've been. On this episode of Shattered, we'll look back at the last truly great era of the Knicks. The snarling, aggressive, and entertaining 90s Knicks, led by franchise legend Patrick Ewing. Sometimes you you don't realize what you have until it's gone. Once I I left, then they realize how good I was for them. What made those teams special allowed them to sustain success over an entire decade. And we'll discuss what caused the end of the 90s Knicks and why things haven't been the same since. This is Shattered, Episode 1, The Collapse of the 90s Knicks. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We knew that we represented the blue collar, you know, hard hat city. You know, New York has both. It has the flair and the, the glitz and the glamour, but it also has people who, who makes the city go. We represented them extremely well whatever made the 90s Knicks special came from their star player Patrick Ewing the expectations on the former number one overall pick were massive when Ewing was in high school in Massachusetts his high school coach Mike Jarvis said that Ewing was going to be like Bill Russell the greatest winner in NBA history except Ewing would be better offensively and the funny thing is Mike Jarvis was kind of right Ewing was a modern-day version of Russell with a better offensive game. He was a forceful, game-changing presence on defense. And on offense, it was Ewing's soft-touching 18-foot jumper that set him apart from most other centers of his generation. Despite all this, the basketball smarts combined with the physical gifts, Ewing and his Knicks teammates were underdogs because they played in the same era as Michael Jordan. But it was that underdog quality that connected Ewing's Knicks with fans in an almost spiritual way. You know, they were always just like we were ready for those big games. They were ready as well. You know, they was always at a fever pitch. They was there supporting us, cheering for us, booing us at times, but it was great. In 1985, the same year Ewing was drafted number one overall, Jeff Van Gundy was just starting his head coaching career at McQuaid Jesuit High School in Rochester, New York. Just a decade later, he'd be coaching Ewing in the world's most famous arena, leading the New York Knicks. People always say, like, New York loves stars. When people say that, it's like they only love stars. I don't agree with that. I think they love anybody that gives great effort and has, you know, passion. That's why I've never believed it's just a, it's just a city that appreciates stars. Like, they appreciate hard playing good basketball. The unique aspect of those 90s Knicks team was the way they played. They represented what New Yorkers imagined themselves to be. They were Times Square before the chain restaurants. It wasn't all Broadway and red carpets and $45 hamburgers at an overpriced steakhouse. The Knicks of the 90s were more like the dollar coffee you get at a bodega. Gritty and effective. It's this weird thing, too, where, like, as a Knicks fan... Jason Concepcion, who emerged as an early star of Knicks Twitter, tweeting under the handle of at Network, now with Crooked Media. Jason is a lifelong Knicks fan. If you're a New York sports fan, I think that there's, like, a perception from outside looking in that, you know, New Yorkers, the Yankees, it's like everything kind of seems to, like, reflect the glow of the Yankees, so it feels like uh, New York sports fans are these front-running, loudmouth kind of characters, but the Knicks, it was like, they were scrappy, they were they were bagging groceries, they played in, like, Turkey and various other places before they had come to the, to the NBA. They weren't supposed to be good they were good because they were just like outworking people and putting them in chokeholds but like outworking people there was an incredible palette of characters that filled the knicks rosters in the 1990s anthony mason who not only played professional in turkey as jason referenced but venezuela as well and mace had to play in those far-flung locales 
just to get a shot of play for the Long Island Surf, a USBL team, which put him on the Knicks' radar. And, of course, John Starks, who before becoming a legendary Nick, famously worked at a grocery store in his hometown in Oklahoma. The, the story about John Starks bagging groceries, John Starks probably put two dozen eggs inside a bag inside a grocery store. Andrew Schultz, stand-up comedian, New York Knicks fan. I doubt the guy was working at a grocery store for that long, okay? But in our minds, we're like, that's the guy from Christini's. You imagine you guy from Christini's as a player for the Knicks. We love that story. Everybody in New York knows exactly what John Starks did before he became a Nick. I guarantee you. Hey, what kind of job did he have? Bagging groceries. The guy was probably the manager of the grocery store. Probably never even worked there. He probably would just get groceries there and put his own groceries in his bag. But we flipped the story. New Yorkers like a guy who is tough and maybe comes from nothing or at least comes from a tough situation and grinds his way out. We don't need the most talented person. We like the person who's hardworking and might get a little grimy if he has to. That's what we love. The 90s Knicks used fear and intimidation as weapons. It was part of the game plan to inflict pain upon their typically more talented opponents. Put on the floor by Oakley and Barkley goes at Oakley. Oakley missed with a swing. Barkley tried to go back at him. Whoa. Charles Oakley, you know, taught me about how to be tough. Charlie Ward was a New York Knicks draft pick in 1994. At that time, Ward was best known as a football star having won the Heisman Trophy as the quarterback for Florida State. And despite his background in football, Ward was introduced to a new level of violence during his rookie year with the Knicks and practicing with Oakley. I got him first on a box out or something. To me, it was clean. It wasn't anything dirty, but it was just a good hard, good hard play. Oakley being Oakley, uh, he punched me in the nose on a, on a layup. He was testing me to see how I was going to react to you know, him swinging and hitting me in the nose. Just go about your business. You don't need to sit there and argue or fight about it. To me, that's just good, clean basketball. It made us all tough. 90s Knicks teams were just pure, hard-nosed, defensive intensity. Rich Kleiman, Kevin Durant's manager, New York Knicks fan. Knock you on the floor. Like, you're not getting an easy basket, period. And the score was, you knew you were going to be in a close game. So the focus on possessions early in games, especially in those in the playoff teams, the 90s Knicks teams, where every possession mattered. And people were going to be on the ground. There was going to be a fight that night. You may see Oakley and Ewing and Oakley and Stark fight with each other. And you knew that it was going to be electric and it was a show. And it was funny because you were getting a show and the games were 76, 74, but you were getting a show. Well, of course. I mean, we, we felt that we were the stronger, more physical team. Chris Childs was a key bench player for the Knicks teams in the back half of the 90s. And guys that, you know, like to get up and down, we were like, well, you know, we got to beat up on them. We got to bring them no easy layups. Uh, every time they come to the basket to score, they got to fill it. And so we knew, you know, what side of the bread was buttered on, and we didn't deviate from that. And if we did... It wasn't our game. So we had to out-physical, out-smart you, and out-work you. And, you know, we had a lot of success playing that way. It was part of those Knicks team to use everything and anything to their advantage. And one advantage every Knicks team has is the New York City nightlife. You know, guys are you know, circling that game on their schedule because, you know, to visit, everybody wants to see New York. Everybody wants to, you know, hang out and enjoy the nightlife. Charles was happy to act as a concierge for opposing players when they came to town. 
he directed them to certain establishments in the city, ones that are known to hold the attention of customers. Yeah, I remember I sent the guys to uh, Jimmy's Cafe in the Bronx. And I knew that they would have a good time because, you know, a lot of guys, you know, come in town, they have a particular, uh, what's the correct word to use? I don't want to, uh, particular type of lady that they, uh, like. I would tell them, yeah, go to this club. You'll see a lot of them there. And they would, and they'd come to the game and, you know, you can smell it in on, you know, their pores and, you know, the eyes are glossy and, after the game or before the game and hey man thanks for uh hooking that place up i had a great time I'm like oh good what time did you get in uh, i don't know three four five okay so we're going to push the ball every occasion and get these guys tired because they're going to be done The architect of the suffocating defensive style deployed by the 90s Knicks was Pat Riley. Before coming to the Garden, Riley, a four-time champion as head coach with the Los Angeles Lakers, was known most for two things. One was his frenetic, exhilarating, push-the-pace offense known as the Showtime Lakers. And two was his look. Riley prowled the sidelines in double-breasted Armani suits. His jet black hair was slicked back. Not a single follicle moving throughout the entirety of an intense 48-minute professional basketball game. It was a style that was the inspiration for not one, but two different characters in movies in the 80s, Kurt Russell in Tequila Sunrise, and, most famously, Michael Douglas's character of Gordon Gekko in Wall Street. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Riley's team-building philosophy for the Knicks was to create a culture of physicality. The idea was to amplify what Ewing was best at and to supercharge it, surround Ewing with like-minded players, and turn the Knicks almost into a hockey team on the hardwood. In a 1993 interview with PBS, Riley joked about just how much the Knicks' culture of physicality bled into all aspects of the franchise. I mean, when I was approached last year by the marketing department, and they, were, they wanted to sort of talk to me about their ad campaign for the Knicks. So one of the, one of the drawings was a picture of the basket looking down in the lane, and then in the lane there was a chalk line of a dead person. <laughs> you know, tough town, tough team, right? When he was hired, Riley would often talk about having a vision, a vision he told Ewing before he eventually took the Knicks job. The vision was of a championship parade going up Broadway. Confetti falling from the sky. Millions of New Yorkers lining the streets from the Battery to the City Hall, cramming in to get a glimpse of New York's latest champions, the 90s Knicks. Though, like almost every other NBA team in that era, were generationally screwed. The Knicks happened to be great during the exact period of time the greatest player in NBA history was at the peak of his powers. You know, I have, I have great respect, great respect for Michael Jordan. Three years in a row, 1991, 92, and 93, Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls knocked the Knicks out of the playoffs. In each of those years, the Bulls went on to win the championship. Riley, in that conversation in 1993, spoke almost fatalistically 
about Jordan's preeminence in the NBA. Our whole approach against the Chicago Bulls is to let our team know that the worst thing that can happen in their careers is that you were born the same time that he was born. We have to beat Michael Jordan. Before Patrick Ewing is ever going to win a championship, he's got to learn how to beat Michael Jordan. I remember being absolutely terrified of Michael Jordan. When Jordan would come in, he'd come in with about eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. And I remember just looking at the lead and going, fuck, slowly this is going to get chipped away. Slowly this is going to get chipped away. And I just watch him work in that post, start to hit those little fadeaways, get to the basket. I'm just, fuck. And it was as if you're drowning in slow motion. That's what it would feel. But from where the Knicks are now, how things recently have been going at the Garden, it's kind of incredible that the Knicks' biggest issue was that they didn't have the greatest player of all time on their team. In the 90s, the Knicks made the playoffs each and every season. The franchise averaged 51 wins per season over that decade. They won 60 games in 1993 and still lost to the Bulls. Included within that stretch were two NBA Finals appearances. One, when Jordan retired. And the Knicks went on to lose in seven games against Hakeem Olajuwon and the Houston Rockets. The other, fittingly, at the end of the decade, in 1999, becoming the first eighth seed ever to make the NBA Finals. The Knicks didn't win a championship during that decade, but they mattered and connected with millions of basketball fans across the New York City area. I grow up a teenager rooting for the um, Ewing, Starks, Oakley, Mason, Knicks. Andrew Yang, entrepreneur, candidate for mayor of New York City and a former Knicks fan. I stood in line for these $10 nosebleed seats uh, that they still made available because, you know, I was poor and couldn't afford much better and was so pumped to get those seats. And they were like the greatest nights for me. I was in the garden for LJ's four-point play. I, I used to see the Knicks as like a metaphor for my life where if like the Knicks were doing well, then like, uh, you know, I was going to have a good year. And happily, the Knicks were really pretty good consistently during those years. The Knicks had a true superstar in Ewing who was surrounded by role players who are still some of the most beloved Knicks to this day. All of that success, though, that decade of excellence, nearly ended before it even began. I joined March 1st. The Knicks were finishing the season in eighth place. That's Dave Checkets. Checkets was one of the most influential forces behind the success of the Knicks franchise in the 90s. In 1991, at 35 years old, he left his job as president of the Utah Jazz to take over the Knicks. Immediately upon being hired, a big problem arose. Patrick had a contract that unless he was one of the top four highest paid players in the game, in that offseason, he could become a free agent. Chekis was confronted with the very real possibility that Ewing would leave for the Golden State Warriors and the Knicks would get nothing. The plan to get Ewing out of New York was created by David Falk the NBA super agent at the time who represented both Ewing and Michael Jordan. Former NBA commissioner David Stern reportedly once joked that dealing with Falk was like dealing with Satan. But David, literally, he just was the, the toughest agent of them all. And I knew exactly what he was doing with Patrick. Ewing was fed up playing for the Knicks. He had played for five coaches in six seasons. Most of those seasons, the team was below 500. Previous Knicks management had handed Ewing a deal. 
that if he was not among the top four highest paid players in the league, Ewing could opt out and become a free agent. With an unhappy client, Falk saw an opportunity to get Ewing out of New York and get him to the Warriors to create a new super team with Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway, and Mitch Richmond. So David Falk went to Golden State and said, look, just go in and redo Chris's contract and load up this next year. Give, pay him a lot of money next year, more than you're paying him. That will trigger Ewing's contract to become a free agent and will come to you. We'll agree on the deal right now. And they'd already agreed on the deal. It was it was 10 million a year for five years, 50 million for five years, which back then was a monster contract. Nothing had ever been seen like that. This is the same offseason. In 1991, Checkers hired Pat Riley to coach the team. But if Ewing isn't there, it all falls apart. No Ewing means no Riley. No Riley and Ewing? That means John Starks doesn't dunk on Michael Jordan. Allen Houston's shot never bounces in to beat the Heat. LJ doesn't hit his four-point play against the Pacers. All those great memories of the 90s Knicks are on the verge of evaporating. But luckily, Charles Oakley's agent let Checkets know what was going on with David Falk, Patrick Ewing, and the Warriors. I called the owners of Golden State, Jim Fitzgerald and Dan Fanone, and I said, I just want to talk to you guys, just honestly. The one thing I have at the Knicks and at Madison Square Garden is I have lawyers. I have lots of lawyers, and I know what you're doing. If you talk Mullen into doing this, changing his contract, you will have interfered in a contractual relationship with us and our relationship, our contractual relationship with Patrick Ewing, our most valuable asset. And we will have been harmed beyond anything you can imagine. And I will promise you, I will tie this up in court for as long as I possibly can, even if it means your team never plays basketball again. I am coming after you. And you think I'm like this nice religious kid from Utah. I'm telling you what you're doing is wrong. It's outrageous. I know all about it. And I will take your head off. Golden State chickened out. With Ewing remaining in place with the Knicks, Checkets moved on to hiring Riley. The negotiation to bring Riley to New York was a precursor to how Riley would negotiate his exit out of New York, filled with lofty demands. Ken Allletter, writing for Vanity Fair, says that when Pat Riley was first hired by the Knicks, Riley asked Paramount, who owned the Knicks, for a book deal with their book publisher, Simon & Schuster. Plus, a separate deal with Paramount for Riley to produce movies with the option to direct and write them himself to go along with his $2 million a year salary. Riley only got the salary the first time around. When went back to renegotiate his deal a few years later, Riley reportedly asked for an ownership stake. Check his push back in that case, leading Riley to fax in his resignation. while he was on his way to Miami to take over the heat. The 90s really were a really energetic, exciting time. Selena Roberts covered the Knicks in the 90s for the New York Times and would continue to write about the team as the sports of the Times columnist 
for the times. The energy and the excitement of the garden, the sort of celebrity row with the garden, it was pretty amazing. And when I covered in the late 90s, you still had all that cachet and, and, and all that sort of electricity around it. At the same time, there were some changes going on. The garden was switching ownership, Cablevision came in, and certainly Jim Dolan came in and started to be a visible sort of force around the Knicks. During the team's run in the 1990s, James Dolan is slowly gaining influence within the franchise. In 1994, Dolan's father's company, Cablevision, along with another company called ITT, bought the garden along with all of its assets, including the Knicks. In 97, the Dolans bought out ITT to gain full control. Then, in 99, the year the Knicks went to the NBA Finals as an eighth seed, James Dolan is installed as the head of the franchise. And I think at first he was sort of getting the lay of the land, but I think as we soon found out, the lay of the land would turn into quicksand. And I think as he became the man who held the, the strings to all the puppets, the dysfunctional uh, nature of the Knicks just grew exponentially. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about that 99 Knicks team, the last truly great moment for the franchise and how the foundation of that team was torn apart from the inside out. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The 99 Knicks should have been a disaster. The season started three months late because the NBA owners and their players were in a labor dispute that turned into a lockout. Leading those negotiations on the players' side was Patrick Ewing. Ewing was the uh, players' union president. You know, he was caught up in, in all of that and wasn't in great physical condition when we started. Van Gundy says they just had 10 days of practice before the season started. In that condensed period of time, they had to integrate Latrell Sprewell, a talented player, but the one best known for choking P.J. Carlissimo, his coach at Golden State. And immediately once the regular season started, in the second game of the year against the Heat. And Sprewell has a stress reaction in his foot. So in a normal year, like him, I think he missed 13, 14, 15 games, something like that. That's not a big deal. But in that year, you know, that's a third of the season. And Ewing was in and out of the lineup because he was hurting. So we were disjointed. Not having Ewing and Sprewell for the third of the season led to a sloppy regular season. The Knicks floated around 500, but despite the injuries and the pedestrian basketball on the court, the biggest issues were simmering off the court. Ernie and I were together nine years. I didn't want to fire him. I didn't need to fire him. That was Jimmy that wanted either Jeff or Ernie to go. The Ernie that Dave Checkets is talking about here is Ernie Grunfeld, the Knicks general manager for nearly the entirety of the team's run in the 90s. The Jimmy 
is James Dolan, who in 1999 was officially installed at the top of the Knicks food chain. During the 99 season, Van Gundy and Grunfeld had been fighting with each other. Look, Phil Jackson and and Jerry Krause at the Bulls never spoke to each other and won six titles. So that wasn't necessary for them to get together, to get along. I could have fixed that after the season. I didn't have to fire Ernie. And he did nothing to be, to deserve being fired. That killed me to do that. I was forced to do that. Check is fired Grunfeld with just eight games left in the season, while the Knicks won a four-game losing streak. Typically, when Dolan inserts himself into basketball operations, ordering the firing of a team executive, the decision creates chaos in the organization. But at that time, in 1999, it actually worked. There were some issues going on with uh, Coach Van Gundy, uh, rumblings about him being fired because we were struggling. That's Charlie Ward, the Knicks starting point guard during the run to the finals in 1999. Whenever there's um, instability, uh, especially in leadership, um, you're gonna it's going to be a trickle-down effect. Uh, it definitely does play a big part in team chemistry because we all feel it, we all sense it. Very similar to like a marriage. Whenever mom and dad are on the same page, there's harmony in the house. When there's no harmony and there's confusion in the house all the time, and it definitely has an effect on the kids. And the kids are going to be kids. Even though we were professional, we're still human. But once the clutter got removed, you know, that kind of cleared up some of the confusion that was going on. Um, and we were able to get it all together with the trail coming back um, and the team learning one another. We were able to uh, make a run. And so it appeared that all this internal pressure had been relieved when Grunfeld was fired. But as Chekets was firing Grunfeld, he was also covertly looking for a new coach. Chekets had a meeting with Phil Jackson to gauge his interest in taking over the Knicks job. News of the Chekets Jackson meeting did not come out immediately. From Grunfeld's firing going forward, Van Gundy and the Knicks went on a run that Charlie Ward talked about. As the Knicks were on the verge of sweeping the Atlanta Hawks in the second round, stories started to come out about the Knicks meeting with Jackson. Knicks fans at the Garden for Game 4 showed their support to Van Gundy, chanting his name throughout the second half. Van Gundy has handled all this pressure and all the tabloid stories and all the, frankly, lies that he's had to deal with with the front office and Dave Checkett said today regarding the Phil Jackson conversation. In the story of the Knicks franchise, the beloved and tough and successful 90s Knicks were beginning to break apart. Dolan was tightening his grip on the team's day-to-day operations, and the deterioration of the 90s Knicks accelerated with a devastating injury to the team's franchise player. Yeah, I kept saying, you know, something popping or just it just didn't feel right. Ewing was battling Achilles tendonitis the entire season. They did a numerous MRIs and stuff, but it, you know I was fine and I kept playing. But eventually, with Achilles tendonitis, if you're putting that part of the body through the physical rigors of a professional basketball game, something is going to pop, and that's what happened in the pregame warmups of Game Two against the Indiana Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. I partially tore it. I finished that game, and I, uh, you know, I was done after that. Think about that for a moment. Ewing tore his Achilles before Game 2, an injury that typically ends a player's season immediately 
the second they feel their pop. But yet Ewing went on to play that game and was even given the ball to take the final shot with the Knicks down two, a shot he would miss. In the moment, it was perceived as another time Ewing choked. But in our conversation with Ewing, he revealed the level of pain he felt. Not physical pain, but emotional pain. Being sidelined while his teammates went on to the finals to play the San Antonio Spurs. I knew it definitely did hurt a lot more. Well, back then, I haven't thought about it, you know, since since then. I mean, it's been a lot of years, but it definitely hurt. I remember us playing in San Antonio, and we, we lost. And I went back to the bus, and I, I just broke out in tears because I was so disappointed that I couldn't play. That finals against the Spurs must have been particularly painful for Ewing to watch. San Antonio, with David Robinson and Tim Duncan, devastated the Knicks inside. It wasn't so much that the 99 Knicks magic wore off. It was the talent gap just got too wide that it was essentially no contest. Jeff Van Gundy. You know, I think it was the combination of Ewing out, Johnson hobbling from the sprained knee, and Dudley couldn't straighten his elbow. We were hurting. They were great. They outplayed us. They were the better team. But obviously, you know, you give us one of our best players, you know, like we're going to feel better about our chances. Whether that, you know, what does that lead to? A win or more? I don't know. But their ability to force us to have to double team Duncan and or Robinson, you know, really broke down our defense at times. It only took five games for the Spurs to knock out the Knicks. After Game 5, Van Gundy went back in the Spurs locker room to congratulate San Antonio's coach, Greg Popovich. He, he said something that I didn't know him very at all, really, then. And he said something funny, though. He goes, we had Tim Duncan and you didn't. So the Knicks end the 99 Finals with Ewing, their aging franchise player, recovering from a debilitating injury. Van Gundy now knows management was actively pursuing another coach to take his job. And there's Dolan, who began interfering with how Chekets was overseeing the Knicks. The next season, Scott Layden from the Jazz was brought in to fill Grunfeld's old general manager position. Layden was left to deal with how the Knicks should handle the end of Ewing's career. Ewing wanted ex- an extension. They did not want to extend him, so that made him angry. Chris Prasad covered the Knicks for the New York Times at the end of Patrick Ewing's time with the team. And then they began exploring trade possibilities. But he went, once he found out they were open or exploring trading him, he demanded a trade. <laughs> so he's upset because he doesn't get the extension and because they were they started looking to trade him or exploring it. And the team had really shifted to where Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston, you know, were kind were the leading scores. And obviously that was going to be tough for Patrick to handle. So that really was the background that led to Ewing being traded. Ewing felt that what had been his team was no longer his team. Sprewell and Houston was taking a more prominent role. And Ewing admits part of the reason he wanted out was because of that reality. I've been there 15 years and most of those 15 years, you hear the, the rumblings by the media or, you know, some disgruntled teammates, uh, the team would be better off without me. After 15 years of hearing that, I just got tired of it. So I thought it was time, to, you know, to move on. If they felt that, that they were better off with, without me, then so be it. So I asked to be traded. 
you know, uh, in hindsight, I should have stayed. I should have finished my career in uh, in New York and with the Knicks. But at the time, uh, I didn't feel that way. Before the start of the 2000-2001 season, Ewing was traded to the Seattle Supersonics for what amounted to be a lot of bad contracts in Glenn Rice. And the Knicks told me tonight, this is done. Patrick has been traded away to Seattle again. This blockbuster of a deal involved four teams, 12 players, five drafts. At the time of the trade, Ewing was 38 years old, diminished as a player, coming off of the Achilles tear. He wanted a big contract that his play on the court would never justify. It made all the sense in the world why the Knicks wanted to move on. But by getting rid of Ewing, his former teammate Chris Childs says the Knicks gave away the institutional knowledge that Ewing possessed. I just never understood why you would trade iconic player like Patrick. You have a you have a veteran guy that's done it over and over and over and over again. Uh, he's going to teach you how to play the game the right way, how to work. I think there should have been a little more loyalty show because he, he gave a sweat, blood, and tears to the franchise and. Um, when it when it happened, I was just just as surprised and shocked as everybody else. Ewing was the heartbeat of all those competitive Knicks teams in the '90s. While he would never be the dominant player he used to be, Ewing still understood what it took for a team to win. Van Gundy says, looking back now, it is clear that the trade should have never went through. Having talked to Patrick briefly at different parts of our lives, the only thing that can be said is it was a mistake on both parties parts. We traded him, mistake. He wanted to be traded, mistake. You know how some people say, you know, it's a win-win? That was a loss-loss. And I think he felt that things were changing, like roles and and things like that, and he wasn't appreciated. And the only thing, I, I, I couldn't disagree with that more, that sentiment that he wasn't appreciated. Like, I think everybody that knew anything in New York appreciated his commitment, like all he had accomplished. I think, unfortunately, it's not Twitter, but it's, it's the same thing. Like talk radio, sometimes we give it too much credence that those people speak for the fans. Those people speak for a very small minority and a small minority of fans. I, I, I thought the unfortunate thing was we confused the vocal minority as uh, as how people felt about Pat. And at the time of the trade, some Knicks fans were ready to see Ewing go. A chance for the franchise to start fresh. Looking back now, though, Ariel Hawani, an MMA journalist for ESPN and a New York Knicks fan, says there's a misconception about Ewing's run at the Garden. The tragedy that is... Patrick Ewing's career because if I could just get this off my chest, this Ewing theory, right? The fact that Patrick Ewing was the guy who held back the Knicks. I mean, it's just such a ridiculous statement. Ewing was the the glue. Ewing was the face. Ewing was the guy who took all the arrows, but at the end of the day, did everything possible for that franchise to get them to a championship and ultimately came oh so close. And it was around the time of the Ewing trade that Chekets himself was looking for an exit out of the garden. During his time with the Knicks, Chekets had seen four different owners in 11 years. He was experienced in operating in less than perfect ownership conditions. But Chekets says Dolan began to reveal that he was going to be a difficult owner to work with, someone who would insert himself into the decision-making process in a harmful way. Jimmy 
hates this story. He absolutely hates it. Dolan wanted to keep Checkets around if he could. In the fall of the year 2000, about six months before Checkets would end up resigning as president of the Garden, Checkets, James Dolan, and several Garden employees were in Sanibel Island, Florida, for a corporate retreat. Some employees had on tropical t-shirts. There was a band made up of Garden employees. As Checkett sits down, Dolan steps to the front of the stage and begins to sing a special parody song just for Checkett's. It was to the tune of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. The song was titled, I'm Chuck Dolan's Son. The theme of it was he was trying both privately and publicly putting the heat on, you gotta stay, things will be better than they've ever been, I won't get in your way, I'll never interfere, I'll never try to make decisions for you. The lyrics revealed to the world in a 2007 Sports Illustrated profile of James Dolan goes something like this. Someday, Davey, I don't know when, we're going to get to that place we all really want to go and we'll have some fun. As long as you remember, I'm Chuck Dolan's son. At the same time, the funny part was, remember, I'm Chuck Dolan's son. Like, I'm here. There's no way you can get me fired or get you out of the way because my dad owns the company. To Dolan's credit, Check It says the song was a huge hit and Dolan got a standing ovation from his paid employees. Still, all the Bruce Springsteen parodies in the world weren't enough to keep Checkets at the Garden. He eventually resigned from his position about six months after Dolan sang, and losing Checkets ended up having a ripple effect inside the Knicks locker room. The one thing I value more than anything is that I gave our team my best. And when I didn't feel my focus was at its best, I don't want to shortchange our team. Without Ewing and Checkets, the strongest final link to the franchise success in the 90s was Jeff Van Gundy. But in the 2001-2002 season, the walls of the Garden had begun to close in on the Knicks coach. Prior to uh, Scott being appointed, the all-time boss was Dave Checkets, and he was such a great leader and buffer. I never heard about, like, ownership frustration. You know, he would bring things to me, but... I, you know, if I had an issue, I went to him and, you know, he just did a great job. But after he left, there became a huge void. He left this previous spring. There became this huge void from as far as a buffer, you know. So I, th I thought it was a big loss. Van Gundy was used to reading in the local papers that he may be fired for one reason or another. Now with Check It's Gone, though, the person that used to act as a buffer between Van Gundy and ownership was gone. Back in Van Gundy's final season with the Knicks, he was having to deal with more negative feedback from within his own organization. It became too much to deal with, and Van Gundy quit 19 games into the season. I think there was, there was frustration level by ownership. There was frustration on my account, and there was frustration, you know, or there was things that obviously happened in the world that impacted us all a couple months before that, 9-11 that I have no idea if, you know, what role that played in it all. And it was probably too impulsive. You know, I probably should have, yeah, I should have just, I didn't do the right thing. That's the bottom line. I should have waited to the end of the year or I should have done it in the summer. That's it. Ownership frustration. 
When we asked Van Gundy what he meant when he said ownership frustration, he declined to offer up specifics, saying, Again, things that, you know, didn't matter, you know. And again, it's just, as what happens when you're there, long, like when you're at a place a long time, you know, it just, it happens. But I'll say this, uh, Jim Dolan, by my accounts, I don't know what he was like after, for all every coach that came after, but to me, he was a good owner because he spent money to try to help you put together the best roster possible and coach your way. I've never, I don't have the same experiences as some others. I, I, my experiences there were great. Frank Isola was covering the Knicks for the Daily News at the time. Isola says one of the ownership frustrations he knows about involves Dolan's demand for the players to take media training. Jim Dolan was obsessed with the media. That was like his his big thing. And I guess they were, had some like goofy media training thing and Camby and Latrell got up and left and he told Jeff, he's like, we got an issue with these players. And Jeff said, what's the problem? He said, they're undisciplined. Jeff said, well, they're not undisciplined. He says, they, they practice hard, they play hard. So right away, there was a bit of a clash because I think Jim Dolan wanted to run things from like a corporate standpoint, not really understanding the dynamics of a locker room and a head coach. And I think that was like kind of the beginning of him meddling a little bit. Patrick Ewing didn't feel appreciated by the organization and he wanted out. Dave Checkett's new Jim Dolan wanted to micromanage the basketball operations and departed to guard. Jeff Van Gundy began to hear more from Dolan and his frustrations, and he abruptly quit. Team president, head coach, the franchise player, all gone in the span of two seasons. All of this creates a vacuum of leadership at the Garden, one that would be filled by the owner, James Dolan. Selena Roberts is a former New York Times sports columnist. The difference when Jim came in is it started to sort of have a, a trickle down from the top. You know, when Jim was angry, everybody got out of his way. And those were some different, difficult times. I think the players felt it. I think the coaches felt it. When you have an owner who is predictably unpredictable, where he is constantly looking at personnel in a love me, love me not, kind of fashion, you know, that makes it really difficult to find stability and to find consistency. And I think that's what you've seen these last 20 years is it is a team and an organization that always struggles to find consistency. And, and because of the dysfunction, they're not very resilient. They don't bounce back from, from things that other teams and other organizations might. And I think that it all ties down to, to Jim being the owner. And those teams would never fully regain the excellence of the 90s Knicks. Journalist and Knicks fan, Ariel Helwani. It really does bother me that the Knicks have become the laughing stock of sports. And not just the NBA, like the Knicks are a butt of a joke, right? The team and the franchise that I fell in love with, you know, they were just, they were so class, right? They were just, they did all the right things. They made it to two finals. That 99 season was magical, all that stuff and more. And it's just, it's still kind of surreal to me 20 years later that they become this, that they become, you know, these, these bottom dwellers, that never do the right thing, that never have any luck. And that just bums me out. Like I want to tell younger fans, newer fans, that the Knicks weren't always like this. They they were a great organization. And I believe that you, you pay the price for that. In the following episodes here on Shattered, we will look at each era of the Knicks during the past two decades. From Isaiah Thomas to the Knicks' pursuit of LeBron James in 2010, to mellow drama and Lynn's sanity, Phil Jackson's return, 
and eventually Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving's rejection of the Knicks. But before we go along that timeline, ahead on next week's episode of Shattered, we'll dive into exactly where James Dolan came from and how he's decided to run the Knicks. You have to understand, this is the key issue of his life. His whole life, everyone has said to him, you are nothing and you wouldn't be in the position you're in if not for your father. Much more on that next time on Shattered. Subscribe to Shattered wherever you get your podcast to check out more great stories about sports and culture, plus ad-free episodes of Shattered. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Shattered to get a special offer on a monthly subscription. Shattered is part of The Athletic's culture coverage. Shattered is executive produced by Chuck D., Lori Bula, and Matt Havia. Mike Smeltz is the producer. J.P. Hesser is the engineer. Tayo Papula is the audio editor. The Athletic reached out to James Dolan and Madison Square Garden for comment about events discussed in Episode 1, and they declined to comment.